This episode of Film Spotting is presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. Josh, we've been talking about their 10-day Sundance retrospective. Some of these movies still available to watch over at Mubi.com, including World's Greatest Dad, the film from Bobcat Goldthwait that we're both fans of. It stars the late Robin Williams. He had a new documentary called Call Me Lucky that just played at Sundance. I know our friend Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News, Capone, said it was one of his favorite films of the festival, and they're closing out the retrospective with a revival of one of their favorite films to ever win the top prize there, the brilliantly radical debut from director Todd Haynes, That's Poison, a movie I've long needed to see. I'm guessing many people out there do need to see Poison. Movie gives you that opportunity. Remember, 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. Again, that's Mubi, M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmspotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This week, the secret of Channing Tatum's sex appeal revealed. I'm a splice. You don't understand what that means, but I have more in common with a dog than I have with you. I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. I mean, who doesn't love dogs? I've always loved dogs. <laughs> Mila Kunis there with Channing Wolf DNA Tatum in Jupiter Ascending, the new sci-fi epic from Matrix directors Lana and Andy Wachowski. Our review of Jupiter Ascending, plus this week's top five movie rescue scenes. That and more. Woof! Ahead on Film Spotted. <laughs> We're very pleased to have Harry's back on board as a sponsor of the show. For guys like you who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com. You'll get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. Also back on board as a sponsor, Josh, Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that makes building your own website simple and easy. They recently launched Squarespace 7 with a completely redesigned interface offering templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and a feature called Cover Pages. All Squarespace sites feature responsive design, so your site looks great on any device and comes with a free online store. They offer 24-7 live chat and email support. I was, Josh, going to feature a testimonial from longtime listener Sam Mowry here in Chicago for her website. We'll save it for next week. Instead, I'm just going to encourage more film spotting listeners to send us info about their site they built with Squarespace. Send that in. You might get a plug on a future show. Just email us feedback at filmspotting.net. For a free Squarespace trial, you don't need a credit card. You can just start building your website today. Go to squarespace.com and enter the code film. That's squarespace.com and use the code FILM for a special offer. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh and I are just holding up here in the Canadian Ambassador's residence until Ben Affleck figures out how to bust us out. Hopefully he shows up before we have to record this week's top five movie rescue scenes. And before he reads my Argo review... (laughs) 
<laughs> I was going to say, did everyone just have flashbacks to our Argo fight there? That top five, plus Josh's report from his long weekend at the Sundance Film Festival later in the show. First, though, if you were a man with dog DNA, what kind of man dog would you be? We'll address that and other important questions in our review of Jupiter Ascending. I just need to know what in the hell is going on. I think we might have stumbled into a war with one of the most powerful dynasties in the universe. Why is this happening to me? You are royalty, your majesty. You are in for a surprise when you find out what I do for a living. It's not what you do, it's what you are. I want her found, and I want her dead. This is one of those still-processing film-spotting reviews as we just came from our screening of the latest mind-bending sci-fi extravaganza or absurd future camp classic from the Wachowskis, Lana and Andy, the siblings behind 2012's Cloud Atlas, the Three Matrix movies, and Speed Racer. Way back in 1996, the Wachowskis debuted with a cool little Chicago-set crime thriller called Bound, which, as far as I can remember, didn't span galaxies or epochs and really has no sci-fi elements to it at all unless you count Jennifer Tilly's voice. Let's face it, Jen just might be from another planet. As the credits rolled, knowing I'd be short on prep time, I instantly started trying to come up with some kind of setup. And my immediate thought was to ask you, Josh, about Channing Tatum's performance. After all, on part two of our 2015 movie preview last week, my number five question of the year in film was whether the beefy, talented Tatum could play a capital C character. Someone like Kane a genetically engineered, sky-surfing, ex-military wolfman who travels to Earth to rescue and retrieve, and I'm not making this up, Jupiter Jones, played by Mila Kunis. I think you got your answer pretty quick on that, didn't you? <laughs> Jupiter is a maid who spends her days scrubbing toilets, sweeping floors, and generally hating her life, but oh, Jupiter just might have a grander destiny waiting for her. Then I remember, Josh, that while we were mulling over various top five topics for this week's show, you suggested Wachowski Moments. I balked, not being sure the Wachowskis were worthy of such a showcase. Co-producer Sam Van Halgren thought it could work, however. Sam wrote to us between Bound and Matrix 1 and uh, Cloud Atlas, Speed Racer, question mark. There's certainly enough scenes, and they are filmmakers who care about making memorable moments. So I think it's worth considering. Sam's plea was ultimately ignored, but he's not wrong. Between Bound the first Matrix movie, and yes, Cloud Atlas, which we both recommended. We certainly could have put together some halfway compelling lists. Who knows? I might have even felt my usual compulsion to cheat and make it a top six or seven. Since you initially had the idea, I'm curious, did Jupiter Ascending make you regret that we didn't honor the Wachowskis by devoting the full show to them this week? And would any of the moments we just saw on screen have a shot at cracking your top five? Or while Jupiter may have been ascending on screen, was your estimation of the Wachowskis worth descending over the course of the movie's 127-minute runtime? So the first sequence that comes to mind as you're talking is when the giant iguana with wings is having the battle with Channing Tatum's mm -hmm. dog man. I think the fact dog, that I just wolf, whatever. said that sentence yeah. really sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about here. That moment did work, though. I was waiting for those iguana creatures to pay off. I mean, they show up early on. Yeah. Their wings hardly unfurl. They're, they're just kind of like henchmen. They get pushed yeah. around a little bit. But they have very stately names. It's it, always Mr. Well, everyone has a stately name in this movie. And and they do finally pay off towards the end there where um, they show what they can do. I thought that was well handled and might have fought for a spot. But 
I agree with Sam that these are filmmakers who are able to make a specific moment work. So they would have fit for that sort of list. We're not saying these are, you know, their their top three films or whatever that might be. It's it's capturing those sequences where you kind of sit back and feel, wow, what did I just watch? I said that in a bad way <laughs> during Jupiter Ascending because it's uh, it, it's really confusing. Uh, there is so much going on that needs to be explained in terms of this other space world that humanity is not aware of. And we come to see those layers and what's going on in the background. Actually, we don't come to see a lot of it. We don't come to see how it works. We're told how it works. Let's put it that way. We yes, see we are. a lot of imagery, a lot of CGI planets and spaceships. So there are visuals here, but they're not always in concert with the world. It, for as expansive as this world is, I felt like it wasn't built mm-hmm. very well. That, that was one thing that held me back. But, you know, you've got to give this to the Wachowskis. They commit to these visions that they have. And there's a full force. You can sense they don't care. They're not worried about how silly other people might find this. And there's something admirable about that. I think that is what made me ultimately like Cloud Atlas is because it had... It had more moments in there for a top five than this does, for, for sure. sure. And I think that I could admire their, you know, just the gusto with which they go into these visions. And there are things here that echo with some of their best films, The Matrix, this idea, we won't give it away, that Earth is essentially, unbeknownst to all of humanity, serving some sort of insidious purpose. Which they already did explore in The Matrix movies. Well, that's very similar. Yeah. yeah. And I liked I like that through line. Like, here's another yeah. take on that. There, there are some interesting things in terms of genetics and how that becomes the currency of the future, or at least this other world. So here and there, you can see a dollop of an interesting idea, but it is ultimately lost in what is a lot of nonsense if you're not attached to the characters, mm-hmm. if you're not attached to the world. You know, I'm I'm OK with this sort of stuff, this sci fi fantasy craziness and i'm trying to process still just coming out of it why i was never able to latch onto it because there are things here that struck me as very silly you put those same lines in another movie another space movie that i like and it wouldn't cause me to blink so there's something missing in jupiter ascending that does hold me back and and i i guess i'll go back at this point to that idea of world building never giving us a time to catch our breath and really get a sense of where we are who the characters are it's full throttle mm-hmm. ahead to the next phase and uh, I just never had a chance to catch up enough to appreciate what was going on. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Unfortunately, I never was attached to any of the characters, never was attached to the world. I'm sure we will talk about some of the performances. I know one in particular we'll get to, and it won't be Channing Tatum. Or if we do, we'll bypass him quickly to get somewhere else. But one of the problems I had with this movie is Tatum and Mila Kunis, who were supposed to believe almost in this fairy tale way. And the movie sets itself up right away as a fairy tale, almost like the Wachowskis are saying, get ready for what we're about to give you. This is all going to be fantastic and ridiculous because it's almost a Cinderella story, right? It Mm -hmm. is a case where at the beginning of the film, you get this origin story and how she's kind of this orphan. Her mom's there, but her dad has been killed and she feels like she's a child of no one place. And then we literally see her scrubbing floors for a living for a rich family. So you get the sense it's Cinderella right from the very beginning. And they even do a pretty good job, Josh, I will say this, of taking those moments that seem like they would be the most 
ridiculous, the ones that would instantly get laughs or groans from the audience. And in some cases, they did. But it's almost as if they anticipated them. They knew it. Because in multiple moments, there are cases where then the characters comment on it or do something to acknowledge it or the filmmakers themselves just do something in the scene to acknowledge it. And one of those examples is actually with the line we referenced in the intro of our show, where when I read that on paper, I read Mila Kunis saying, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. I didn't even watch the scene. I was just cringing at how any screenwriter could write that. Well, guess what? When you actually see that play out in the movie, it works. It more or less works because they acknowledge Mila Kunis the character in the scene, the Wachowskis writing it and directing it, they acknowledge that that was an absurd thing to say, mm-hmm. that that was a girl trying to impress a guy and it came out the wrong way. There are multiple cases of that in the movie where they acknowledge those kind of groaners. Maybe that's what it is about the Wachowskis for me. There is a self-awareness there that helps you with some of the sillier moments and also becomes admirable that they're going to plow through anyway. Right. Now, now, that line is a little riskier and it does work. I don't think the one with Stalin's balls works very well. I mean, there are a lot of clunkers in here, oh, too. the royal bowels. I yes. mean, which should be someone's band name, but <laughs> otherwise should never be uttered. So for, for everyone that works, there's probably a couple that aren't quite as successful. So Tatum, let's just say he can't do the character thing. But what happens here that's more unfortunate, because if he tried that big and failed, maybe it would be more interesting. We'll get to something that works that way. Yeah. Uh, he basically just drains himself of all charisma and personality. Right. right. And we're both fans of his. Mm-hmm. It, it, let me ask you this, because you've said many times how you pinpointed his talent early on. Mm-hmm. If this was the first film you saw Channing Tatum in, would you have any sense of what he could do? No. And I wouldn't want to see what he does next. Exactly. I wouldn't care at all. It's like his approach. It's his approach to doing this outlandish character is just to shrink. Down, mm-hmm. he'll you know he does the big action macho stuff, but we see that a million. He times spends more time these... shirtless here than in Magic Mike. I think you might be right. I think you might be right. It doesn't really help though. It helped in Magic Mike, yeah. not here. No, and I think what I was saying about the performance with him and with Mila Kunis, one of my big problems with the movie, as we're discussing the lack of attachment we felt, they just have no chemistry. We're supposed no, to buy don't. them they as don't. these lovers who there's this tremendous heat between them and one of them in very cliche action movie ways, one of them being Tatum, can't fully express that yeah. for her. He's got to stay focused on what his objective is. Which never is. really makes sense. And she's very aggressive in pursuing him. But there's Which no really never whatsoever. Makes sense. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't at any point in the film. Neither of their motivations for the relationship. They don't work. And that's fine because sometimes, Josh, with love, you don't need rational motivations. It's just that heat. You just have to buy that they have that connection with each other yeah, and you want them to be together. There. Never felt it, not can, even for a can second. Can I say, though, I think Mila Kunis brings a light touch to this that is necessary of of everyone on screen mm. she hits the tone the closest when I would she's say. not when she's not acting as if she's in an after school special which she does exhibit it, when she's in not a lot of earnest oh so yeah. earnest yeah, and right. so serious and and overly dour at times and emotional when no, nobody I'm, else on screen I'm thinking is doing about that. when she's uh, you know offering a little aside or trying to bring a little bit of humor to it mm-hmm. um, i think that is the tone that might have made this work but again Tatum's not on board with it. And going overboard yeah. is Oscar nominee Eddie Redmayne. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. As the villain of this film. He's really the, the main villain. There's, yeah, there's, there's three siblings who yeah, are, are all bad. 
they're all bad in various Again, ways. Again, in a fairy tale kind of way. Yeah, because almost. they're two kings and a queen of some sort. They're royalty. I didn't quite follow it, but they own planets. And uh, Eddie Redmayne is, he owns Earth when this begins. Is that correct? Well, he is the rightful heir, heir to Earth, Earth, but not okay. if his mother is still alive. And yes. that's all okay. we'll really yes. say, but Mila Kunis factors into that. Right. That's right. Okay. And, and he's just, the voice he chooses, maybe we should start there. Like it's, someone stepping on his windpipe? That the or, whole movie, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a struggle for him to speak. It, he looks a little like Ziggy Stardust, yeah. and he, like he swallowed a carton of cigarettes. He oh, didn't smoke it. them; right. he just swallowed, he just swallowed them, them, and they're stuck down there. <laughs> and he's having trouble getting out oh, man. the commands that he occasionally screams. Yeah, he either screams or mumbles, and you can't hear him yeah. at all. <laughs> Exactly. And there no is wonder one his moment. henchmen have trouble completing their duties. What's that Michael they have Sheen? No idea what he's what's saying? that Michael Sheen moment from one of the one of the Twilight movies where he just loses oh, it in this yeah. classically over the top yeah. British way? Eddie Redmayne has one of those moments here. There where, are a few. What does of he them. say? What's the line? It's about I create life. He says yeah, that sounds right. Wow, it's that sounds right. It's ripe for a future massacre theater. That's what I'll say. It's we'll it's just there. an awful awful performance, and he's a fine actor. And the problem with it, Josh, is my whole thing about can Channing Tatum play a capital C character? As you've said, I would agree with you fundamentally that. He didn't prove here that he can, but I am grateful that he wasn't really part of the problem with this movie. We'll no, I didn't enjoy him. his performance, but yes, it's forgettable like most of this movie is, unfortunately. That's ultimately my biggest issue with it is that there's nothing memorable about it. I wouldn't pick the flying any moments out. Fight. The flying iguana That fight. wasn't even good for me, but no, nothing would make a top five potentially looking at the Wachowski's work. But he doesn't do anything to make it over-the-top bad the way Redmayne does. He just exists on screen. And in that way, I'm almost grateful, but there's also a part of me that wishes he did push the envelope more so I could have had more fun watching this movie go down that path of becoming a future camp classic. Redmayne, though, he totally violates my theory that I espoused, which was that Hollywood actors like Channing Tatum, these movie stars, they may not be able to pull it off. Basically, if you're a British theater actor, you, you can you give him the green light. I gave Eddie Redmayne the green light and <laughs> now, he look what happened. he went 160 miles per hour. Well, and, and here's the, you know, the sad thing about it is he is nominated for the theory of everything. And what stood out to me is that if you put those two performances side by side, in a lot of ways, they're not very different. Hmm. He has some close up scenes of high emotion and you can see him using the same technique and and going for the same sort of beats. Does he shout, I created and, physics? <laughs> it's it's unsettling because what it does is it makes you legitimately question that earlier performance of the theory of everything, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> but then you see those same sort of things at work here and you wonder, oh. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> You're listening to Film Spotting. We're having a little bit of fun discussing the new film from the Chicago-based Wachowski siblings. The movie is Jupiter Ascending. They use the Chicago skyline pretty well, I thought. That and was maybe kind that's of just because we're familiar with yeah. it and we can we get a better sense of space. Oh, they're flying past that. They're but flying visually, past this. Visually, and you touched on this a little bit, this movie was in 3D. Maybe this is a good thing that I found myself throughout the movie and as it was ending, asking why. And I say maybe it's a good thing because it didn't draw attention to itself, but I ultimately, maybe this is after following the Godard film, honestly, even after following the SpongeBob movie that opens this weekend, that made better Better use use of of 3D. 3D. Watching this film, I didn't understand why it even tried that at all. And my biggest issue, Josh, too, was just in general, 
Cloud Atlas had so many moments of real grandeur and wonder, and they weren't always intergalactic or interstellar in mm -hmm. nature. This has all those types of moments, and save for a couple shots. There are a couple shots in this movie of characters who are almost like specks who are out flying or floating against, in one case, I think it's the Chicago skyline. Other cases, it's another world. But they're almost these little tiny specks against this backdrop as they free fall. And those are sort of breathtaking, but they're fleeting, and that's all the movie really has to offer. And we get the first big action sequence, the big set piece in this movie, against the Chicago skyline when... Channing Tatum tries to rescue Mila Kunis or does rescue her. And then a bunch of bad guys swoop in and their aircraft. And it's a 10 minute dogfight around mm -hmm. the city, blowing up buildings and bridges and everything else, feeling almost like a Transformers movie. And I was watching it going, oh, yeah, these are the guys who made Speed Racer, where you've got just this overly long, overly redundant, doesn't go anywhere. Nothing really seems to be at stake. There was nothing to those action scenes that drew me in in any way. Part of the problem is it's consequenceless. And Stakes. we get yeah. it in the plot. Mm -hmm. At some point, we start to wonder, isn't, isn't anyone going to notice that Willis Tower is crumbling apart yeah, and then the they comment on and that and they comment on that, an that they have to wipe humans minds or something like that so that they don't realize this other world but but what's the effect of that exactly what you said nothing matters nothing matters it doesn't matter and this that's at the beginning and once that has been set in place in a world that has some semblance of reality right. the Chicago skyline then we transfer to these CGI space worlds that really hold no weight for us whatsoever we already have this sense that anything that happens has no consequence and we lose any sort of investment in yeah. what's happening in the film. Yeah, and at the end of the film, which we won't spoil anything, but when there is finally the big climactic showdown, the truly big action set piece of the film, unless I miss something, maybe you can fill me in, but everything basically is pushed into action. Everything is instigated only because this world all of a sudden seems to be destroying itself. And... There never is any explanation. In a movie that has explanations galore, that's all this movie does is have scene after scene of characters talking about what's going on and explaining backstory. There's no explanation given. All of a sudden, everything is just blowing up. I was going to ask you that. There has to have been some sort of hint what that we, we both missed, but I didn't catch it. And it does propel all of the grand right. action. That I mean, everything that happens in the last 10 minutes depends on that explosion. Yeah, and I have one potential theory, but if that's what it is, if what we see happen involving Channing Tatum's character as he descends down to that planet, if that's it, that's not sufficient. That's the best thing I can think of. And though. that's the best thing I can think of. But yeah, there's just so many of those types of issues with this film. And at one point, Sean Bean, who is great in this movie, he's one of those actors who can pull off having kind of the grandiosity that a crazy movie like this needs. He does say, as we're talking about talkiness, he's looking at Channing Tatum and he says, you can't say it, so I'll say it for you. And I was like, that's what all this movie has been, is characters saying for the other characters what they can't say and all this explanation. At times, I was giving the Wachowskis some credit for it. You talked about the Chicago skyline and we get an explanation of how they sort of wipe their minds and everybody goes back in an almost a men in black type way to forgetting everything mm -hmm. they just saw go down. And I did like that because it makes me think of one of the things I still remember from The Matrix is when there's a moment of deja vu. Yeah. Keanu Reeves says deja vu and yeah. I think it's Trinity who says there must be 
something wrong, then that's a glitch in the matrix. And you go for a second, if you're really tuned into the movie, you go, oh my God, we're all living in the matrix Mm -hmm. because that's the best explanation for deja vu I've ever heard. (laughs) How else could you have that other than we've all been through this before. It's sort of a program and there's some bug. It's brilliant. And this is not as brilliant, but when you hear their explanation for how all of a sudden Chicago just rebuilds itself and everybody goes back to their lives as normal, you do think about it. Oh, you know what? Maybe that is why we have people who are sure that they saw UFOs and were abducted oh, yeah. and did all these things, because as the character says, you can never get all of right. them. That's a pretty good explanation for those kind of things. And the Wachowskis clearly enjoy coming up with those types of explanations. I did like that. And we should also note that, as usual, the costuming in their films is pretty remarkable. And Mila Kunis here gets to be the benefit of that for very laborious reasons. Again, I didn't follow one of these three royal members, one of the brothers mm-hmm. she marries or gets engaged to. I I didn't quite understand what the more fairy tale. What the yeah, more yeah. fairy tale, but what the goal was there. But at any rate, she gets all dressed up and with this fantastic headdress. The ma- the eye makeup they put on her when she goes from one world to the next. It's very flash gordon. It, it, no, it's it's better than that. I mean, it's, it's oh yeah, it's, it's higher pretty, production value. Oh yeah, I mean, but it's, it's pretty, basically Flash Gordon. That could that carried me through a lot of the scenes. Is just appreciating even in the background characters, the sort of costuming that's been developed hmm. uh, for the film. I thought that was you know that was pretty high level in terms of what's going on in this movie. That's one of the things you can appreciate, but. Beyond that, it did lose me early on, never really regained me, and it does go for a little bit over two hours, right? Yeah, it does. And I don't know that I would look back on their body of work and ever say that the Wachowskis are filmmakers with a great sense of humor. And that's validated here in this movie when you get an extended sequence that is like the worst day ever at the DMV. And Mm -hmm. in fact, a character then comments on the DMV. And it feels like this moment where they clearly just said, we're going to pay homage to Terry Gilliam here. It's Brazil. It's a Brazil-type world where it's all about filling out papers and maybe you can get what you want if you pass a bribe, but otherwise you're just going to go from window to window to window with nobody caring and going around in all these different circles. And then it turns out we were just talking right before we started taping. You were looking at the IMDb page, Terry Gilliam, is the actor at the end who right. culminates that whole sequence. So clearly an homage to them. Brazil was all I was thinking that entire time. They don't have Gilliam's sense of humor, though, whatsoever. Well, I think, and it fails. It just falls flat the whole time on screen. I think you're pointing to it when you mentioned the length of it and the excess, because mm-hmm. I was noticing even in that montage, Channing Tatum is in each of those scenes as they're waiting in one line or the other. And I was just watching him yeah, in the background. Yeah, I was too, and standing you, there with a dull look on his face. And you can sense, like, wow, bored. they did this maybe for like two or three days. Oh, yeah. And you can tell that it's just like, <laughs> Stand okay, in, anybody? we've done this joke. So mm-hmm. I think that I think they do. They do have a, there is a sense of humor in their films, but it's quicker. You talked about it with the the alien comment. You know, it's more it's quicker things like that, that move that are that are fleeting and fast yes. than these long comic set pieces. There are a few with her family before all of this begins that she lives with an extended family that also go on a little bit long when they're mm-hmm. trying to go for the humor. So definitely not a strength. Uh, Speaking of inspirations, though, or possible ones, Cinderella was clear. Did you think of The Wizard of Oz, too, as well, with her? The, the many comments she made of saying, I just want to get just home. Just want to go home. Yeah, I good just, point. And, and that made me think about, you know, another way where 
I wasn't brought into the film's world because I just never had a sense of that longing mm-hmm. on her character's part no. or even my own. No. And it was odd because a lot of it does, we're in Chicago for quite a bit at the beginning of this movie. It's not that, you know, we leave there in the first scene. Uh, maybe Guardians of the Galaxy is right. somewhat like that, where there is Earth and then we're pretty much gone. So it isn't that. It's just that we have never developed an attachment for Again, the character. You don't buy it. You, you don't, don't buy, buy anything about the world. You do, the that's world. Been created. It's, you, we, we don't feel far away Mm-mm. when we're in all of these space places because we know they're just coming out of computer magic. We move from one to another so easily. There's no sense of being far away from home, which no. undercuts a lot of what's supposed to be driving the main character. I hate to pile on here, but some of the lines I jotted down, we've hit on a few of them. But there's a moment where after this whole sequence where Channing Tatum has just explained that basically destroying Chicago doesn't matter because it's all going to be repaired in a few hours or whatever. And nobody was harmed. He then says after she explains to him that she's really a nobody, she's just a maid. He says, well, clearly they wouldn't demolish an entire city just for a maid. Yes, I noticed that one. But that doesn't really matter, (laughs) as we've just been told. My other (laughs) my other favorite line, maybe in the whole movie is Eddie Redmayne being grandiose Eddie Redmayne looking like this universal overlord standing there looking out at the galaxies in front of him and one of those iguana henchmen walks in and says, there was a problem at the clinic. (laughs) 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 Which just never should be said in this universe. (laughs) Unless you're an iguana henchman. (laughs) Oh, it's so bad. Going along with that, when one character refers to the universe as the verse... I yeah, guess that's, that's what used, all the cool kids are doing that's these days. Used, that's used a number of times. I was thinking about starting to use it. You don't think I should? I, no, no, not unless you have an iguana outfit. And the moment, the only moment in the entire film, so it makes no sense, when Jupiter Jones says, call me Jupe. Yes, she did choose that. I think that's that was the first time we heard it, too, right? Yeah, that's okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. It has yeah. no context. She's never told anybody, no. nor have we heard anybody call her that, well, but she just casually throws out, call me Jupe. She was waiting, she was holding out for that one until she ascended to the throne, and yeah. then she was going to be Queen Jupe. Well, I want to end on somewhat of a positive note by giving some credit to the British actors who do pull off their parts. Okay. Douglas Booth as Titus, the other brother, the other Titus overlord, works. and, oh, the wonderfully Britishly named Tuppence Middleton. I hope she marries Benedict Cumberbatch and they have lots of kids together. That would be amazing. They got to hyphenate their names. The Middleton Cumberbatches. I love it. A lovely I love fa- it. A lovely and family. They're both incredibly talented. She's the sister in this little triumvirate. Yes. And she also is wonderful in every scene where she acts opposite Mila Kunis. You just realize that one of them belongs and one of them just quite doesn't. Well, they're both space queens, though, at that point, Adam. So yeah, something like that. That's Jupiter Ascending, which opens wide this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You must leave it in your best Iguana henchman voice. We have a few odds and ends to get to when we return. Adam's recommendation of Duke of Burgundy, my report on my time at Sundance, and an extra-large edition of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Hey, shady baby, I'm hot, like the prodigal sun. Bigger battle, mini money, more and flower, you're the chosen one.
Before we get to your Sundance recap and some fun with Massacre Theater, I did want to take another moment to recognize Harry's for supporting film spotting this week. I've been a Harry's user, Josh, for six months or so, maybe a little bit more, and I really do love the product for a few reasons. One, Harry's sends me high-quality razors at about half the price of big brand blades, and I love the fact that they're shipped right to my door every two months, so I don't have to deal with going to the store. You don't shave, so you don't know this, Josh, but those razor blades, they're kept behind a lock and key. Usually I have to go ask That's someone what I hear. to get them. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a pain. It is a pain. I don't have to deal with that anymore. Just when I'm starting to run out, I get another batch of blades in the mail. Those blades are engineered for sharpness and high performance, so no more dull blades. And the price. Because they make and ship their own blades, Harry's is a more efficient company, which means they can offer factory direct pricing. Their social mission, too, is something that is important to me, Josh. They give 1% of their sales and at least 1% of their time to organizations that prepare people for personal and professional success. This is similar to Warby Parker, who has also been a sponsor here on the show before. They're the glasses frame company. One of the co-founders of Warby Parker is also a co-founder of Harry's. I use the Winston set, but the starter Truman set is also a great deal. You get the razor handle, three razor blades, and a choice of either shave cream or foaming shave gel, and it's all for just 15 bucks. Maybe is the time I should try it. This this stubble has gotten a little out of control through the Sundance rush. I didn't have time. I wasn't going to say anything, anything so but maybe now's the time, Josh. Might have to go to harrys.com. I'll get $5 off my first purchase with the coupon code FILMSPOTTING. That's harrys.com. Enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at the checkout. It is big in here. Um, I'd like to again, on the behalf of the jury, uh, thank Sundas for inviting us. Um, it's been an incredibly inspiring week. I actually saw 34 films uh, and ate way too much chocolate. Um, but the, out of the 16 that were in competition in our category, US Dramatic, it's been an incredibly strong and diverse slate of great comedies and powerful dramas this year. So it's my great pleasure to give the Grand Jury Award to a film that comprises the best of both. The US Dramatic Jury Prize goes to Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, directed by Alfonso Gomez Rejon. The big conclusion there to last Saturday's closing night award ceremony at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. That was Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim versus the world director Edgar Wright awarding the Grand Jury Prize to me and Earl and the Dying Girl, a film our colleague David Ehrlich, who we occasionally like to quote here on the show, summarized as the fault in our stars for criterion collection fetishists. Are you sold on that, Josh? Forget the award. Are you sold on that description? I will go with that description. <laughs> that accompanies a four and a half star rating yeah. over at Letterboxd by David. Me and Earl won the jury award and the audience award for best U.S. dramatic feature, a feat last achieved, believe it or not, just last year when Whiplash pulled it off. So I guess we could all be wondering a year from now, will we expect to see Me and Earl as a best picture nominee like Whiplash? Maybe not. Back in 2013, the winner of the Grand Jury and Audience Award went to Fruitvale Station. So not exactly 
a direct pipeline to the Oscars, but certainly me and Earl is a film we'll get around to seeing sometime later this year. Josh, you were making your Sundance debut. I know you didn't see the movie there, but did you hear any of the buzz about it? That was probably the most talked about one, at least the days that I was there, me and Earl. So, yeah, we'll definitely have to catch that when it does come to Chicago. I'm Mm -hmm. assuming it will if it got that sort of award attention. Yeah, we'll have more information about that as we hear it in terms of its distribution and release dates and plan to discuss it at some point here on the show. We'll also get to a little bit more in terms of Sundance Recollections from Josh in a moment. First, we do have a little bit of housekeeping. Wanted to plug our Satchajit Ray Marathon. Our first marathon of 2015, it is looking at the work of the Indian auteur, and we posted our first review of the first film in his Apu trilogy, Pather Panchali. I guess you could call it a glowing review, Josh? I recall we were both fairly favorable. Pretty, pretty high on that movie. We're going to discuss the next two movies in that trilogy together next week, so look for that in our iTunes feed on Wednesday, February 11th. You can also find the shows at filmspotting.net. Are we going to do that as a download a separate download again we as will we did the okay. so far seems like so we've far, gotten good response yeah to everybody that. has enjoyed being able to access those shows kind of separately from the show proper not played on the radio so if you're listening on wbez want to hear those discussions we encourage you again to subscribe to the podcast on itunes or listen at filmspotting.net that's also where you'll find our latest poll question we are looking ahead to our sacred cow discussion next week of clint eastwood's best picture winning unforgiven so we're asking you which eastwood directed film is his best so far coming out pretty much exactly how we (laughs) projected it to josh we'll share the results on that unforgiven episode along with our oscar picks michael phillips from the chicago tribune will be joining us for all of that he will miss out it seems though josh on the fun of massacre theater which is what we're going to do now we perform a scene badly you get a chance at winning a prize last time we massacred this sebastian I know you've been keeping something from me. Keeping something? About Ariel. Ariel? In love? I tried to stop us. She wouldn't listen. I told her to stay away from humans. They are bad. They are trouble. Humans? What about humans? Humans? (laughs) Who said anything about humans? That was Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian and Kenneth Mars as King Triton in 1989's The Little Mermaid. It was written and directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. We massacred that scene a couple weeks back on episode 522. It was a tie-in with our top five that week, part one of our 2015 preview. Josh, your list included Sofia Coppola's planned live-action adaptation of the Hans Christian Andersen story. Considering, though, that it doesn't currently have even an IMDb page... I'm calling shenanigans. I think your entire list is invalid. I, I just made it up. No one. Has, I think you did. No you one has said want. anything. You want to see Sophia Coppola do it. Exactly. Yeah, and we're going to get to some great feedback on that here in a moment, envisioning what that might be like. But first, we have a comment from Tim Stanek in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He says, how could I fail to recognize even the smallest throwaway scene from the ever-worn VHS copy my younger sister had on a perpetual loop? That's me. My <laughs> sister Megan was the young one at the time who, it was either Megan or Alexa, sorry. Four younger sisters, very hard to remember all of them, but they wore that movie out. Besides, Tim says, Adam stole the show this week. He got more confident as the scene went on, and I think in one more take, he would have nailed it. <laughs> Josh just let out the beast, as usual. Beast mode, that's, that's what that that's is. That's you? 
Robin Plainfield, Illinois, said, I had some trouble making the connection until Josh's number four pick for most anticipated 2015 movies. I blame it on Adam's executive decision to give Sebastian both a sex change and decide he is no longer Jamaican. Come on, (laughs) Rob, that is accurate. I know it's accurate, though. And here's the thing. I didn't know it at the time. Like in the scene, I thought I nailed it. Uh, So you I thought I was pretty close. You were going for Male, oh, yeah. male and Jamaican. Well, both was, of those. I was going for lobster and Jamaican, <laughs> or whatever the hell Sebastian is. <laughs> Not necessarily male, but I was going for it, and it wasn't until I listened to the show, just experiencing it as a listener would, and right away I was you like, "Wow, how okay." Bad you were. I completely lost the Jamaican accent, <laughs> and I did my high pitched female borderline falsetto again. Yes. I wasn't trying to do that. I mean, I mean, Sebastian's a little squealy, but man. No, not no. that. Not that squealing. One word. I literally only got one word that sounded vaguely Jamaican. It was humans are bad. See, <laughs> that was got, it. You got to start somewhere. Take B- build on that for this week. Uh-huh. Matt Peterson in Wheaton, Illinois, says perhaps the names Anderson and Sylvia. We did have some fun with the names. Were chosen to replace King Triton and Sebastian the Crab in reference. There he is. He's a crab, not a lobster. I'm not. See, I'm not good with my marine that's biology. That's what threw your whole performance yeah. off. In reference to Hans Christian Andersen, the author of The Little Mermaid, and famed marine biologist Sylvia Earle, who undoubtedly is the foremost authority on real mermaids. Well, he's half right. Half right. You had. The idea for Sylvia was a little more highbrow than this. Way more highbrow. I went totally down my English major path and had to pull out Sylvia, as in Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. who wrote a collection of poems called Ariel. Obvious. Obvious. And yet no one got it. All of our erudite, occasionally pedantic listeners, Josh, no one came up with We're that. highly disappointed. We are. Emily Martin from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, said, this might be the movie I'm most excited for this year. Too bad it doesn't exist, Emily. Yes. <laughs> I'm a huge Sofia Coppola fan. Yes, even Marie Antoinette. I will defend that movie always. Really hoping her incarnation of this classic story is closer to the original Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. As much as I love Disney's Little Mermaid, I think Coppola has proven she can do really interesting things with darker material. So yeah, Emily's most anticipated movie of the year currently playing in Josh Larson's mind, or maybe Pete Craig's mind. He's in film spotting East Alexandria, Virginia. He says, what do you think? Bill Murray is Triton, Al Pacino is Sebastian, Evan Rachel Wood is Ariel, Michael Fassbender is Louie, all wearing scuba suits and speaking their lines between gulps of air. Yeah, that could work. I like it. See, this is how movies get made, Adam. They start as rumors on a podcast, Uh a listener casts it, next thing you know, it's released. There you go. Well, I don't know if the scene was just that easy or if it was the amazing performances people could see through my obfuscation with Sebastian the Crab, or maybe it was you mentioning the title or the fact that I also dropped a little hint there in the top five, but the most entered Massacre Theater we've had in probably a year and a half here on the show. Not even in the top 25 all time, but huge number of entries, certainly compared to what we've had recently. That's great. Maybe Sam's little production hint there as well, throwing in the Massacre Theater theme that had Lost in Translation, a Sofia Coppola movie. Maybe that put people in the right frame of mind. Whatever it was, huge batch of entries. You have to reach into the brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Jeff Haynes from Spenceport, New York. Congratulations, Jeff. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. We will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. Thankfully, there are no cameras this week <laughs> for this scene, this version of Massacre Theater, which has a couple tie-ins, I think, 
to this week's show. Maybe when we initially came up with the idea, I believe our esteemed associate producer, Candace, threw this one out there. Maybe someone from the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Maybe there's only one tie-in in mind, but there's at least two. I'm sure our listeners will come up with five or six more. I am glad there are no cameras because I think I'm going to try to do some physical altercation here to, oh, no. to get this right. Some funny voices. Well, it, it, I may need a little extra help. <laughs> are you going to put on wolf ears? That would not help. No. Okay. I'm going to swallow that carton of cigarettes that Eddie <laughs> Redmayne was chomping on. You start out the scene, so I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Wait, wait. <clears throat> oh, God. Okay. I wish you could see this, everybody. And action. Exhibit Q. A scale model of the entire mall. X marks the scene of the crime. These arrows here show the exact position of the sun at the hour of the crime. Jupiter was aligned with Pluto. The moon was in the seventh. Ru- Sorry, I got to be better. You just floored me with your performance. Let's start it again. Do it again. From the top? No, from at uh, the moon was in the seventh. The moon was in the seventh. Ruben. Please save your questions until I'm through, Chuck. Well... When will that be? A long time we wait. We've been here for over three hours now, and I'm not sure if any of us can see what all this is supposed to mean. Supposed to mean? Supposed to mean? I think everyone here knows what this is supposed to mean. If you've gone over something again and again and again like I have, certain questions get answered. Others spring up. Your mind plays tricks on you. You play tricks back. It's like you're unraveling a cable knit sweater that someone keeps knitting and 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 scene. Thank you. I was running out of breath. I was going to say, are you lightheaded now? Are you going to make it through the rest of the show? I don't think that tactic helped at all. Oh, I I do. Really? I think it really worked. I might have thrown a few listeners. I loved it. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. I was only determined to sound like a man there. I think I pulled it off. (laughs) You got a little closer. We'll see. Your deadline, Sunday, February 15th. Maybe that was what led to all the entries. People commented, Josh, on enjoying the reminder that depending on when you're listening, you actually have about two weeks to enter Massacre Theater. You've got some extra time. So please take advantage of that. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. I got to go blow my nose now. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Now you see, these younger generations, Don, they need proof. Okay, They need hard evidence in these dark, dark times. And I believe that the Lord has been preparing you. The Lord wants you to be his, his instrument in this great work. Now, what I'm proposing, Don is that you allow us to participate with you in this great work by letting us bankroll all your future digs and projects. I honestly don't know what to say. Sam Rockwell and Danny McBride in a clip from Don Verdine, the new film from Napoleon Dynamite director Jared Hess. It had its debut at the Sundance Film Festival last weekend. Josh, I follow you on Letterboxd at Larson on film. Well, thank you. Yeah. And... Based on spying your letterbox entries, I see you managed to fit in 11 films during your few days in Park City. Yes. With the exception of Verdine, you seem to stay pretty true to the intentions you were discussing on last week's show, which was to put a priority on movies made by female directors or featuring female protagonists and to largely ignore the big flashy screenings, the movies that will very likely make their way to Chicago later this year. So you sought out 
more of the obscure stuff. How did that go for you overall? What was your experience? Yeah, and the impetus for that really was our Oscar snubs discussion that we had on the show maybe two shows ago and just uh, the controversy surrounding that, particularly Selma. And what was encouraging is how easy it was to do at Sundance. I did pick out a couple of films in advance to to make sure to throw those into the mix. Some of them were just things I came upon while I was there. And there was a good representation of female directors, non-white filmmakers in the mix. So that kind of goes back to the question we were asking each other about, you know, do the movies need to get approved, get made? Do they need to be found by critics and championed? And uh, it's just encouraging to see that, yes, they are out there. And what I saw was a, a really good slate. I would probably say that there are two films that jumped out above all the others to me. And one of them is a documentary. It was called Pervert Park about a mobile home park in Florida that has been started and set aside for convicted sex offenders who have been released. They're on parole, can't find a place to live because of restrictions about being near schools and so forth. So this is a place they can live. They can be together. There's a therapist there who offers counseling. It was founded actually by a woman whose son was convicted, sent to jail, released, and she couldn't find a place to live with him. So that's how it started. And this is just a remarkable, highly uncomfortable documentary. Sure. Um, really rough stories you hear, but remarkable in its empathy for these people as people still who are coming to terms with their crimes and sharing their feelings about what they did, where it's left them, how they're going to move forward with their lives. And it felt to me watching this documentary because it's not voyeuristic at all. It's not exploitative at all. Like these folks were giving confession. And sometimes, especially with documentaries, I worry about that. Like sitting there in the audience, I feel like I'm just sucking in this person's story for my own entertainment or because they're a little odd or outrageous. Here, it almost felt like we were serving a purpose in the audience to just receive the stories because the the people who are on screen willing to talk about it, they were doing it for themselves. You got the sense. Um, so it was this really unique experience. It was also the film where there were the most walkouts because of the uncomfortable subject matter, not because of, you know, people were just thought it was poorly made or anything, but just having to sit through that. So a really affecting movie. I don't know what its future is with that subject matter, but if you have a chance to find Pervert Park and feel like you're up for the topic, I would encourage you to check that out. Something completely different was The Witch. This is one I did kind of pinpoint and wanted to check out. It's a Puritan set horror film that is directed with such sophistication for a movie that does have some shock elements to it, but also the way it interweaves family dynamics and how those come into play with the suspicion that surrounds the oldest daughter in this family that she may be a witch. So that it works on those two levels as something that's shock horror, but also insidious psychological horror and gets crazier and crazier as it goes on. Saw that at 1130 with an audience that was really into it. That that was a really fun experience and actually happened to catch it with John Madsen, a film spotting listener. Good who connected guy. Me, yeah, he connected with me there. And so we had a lot of fun going to see that. Just a couple more titles I'll throw out real quick here. Songs My Brothers Taught Me was a Terrence Malick-like family portrait set on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. I believe that's in South Dakota. Just capturing this uh, small family, an older brother who has plans to leave to get away, um, but he has a younger sister there, and you can just sense they're so close, their relationship is so tight, and life on this reservation is so fragile that if she loses him, she's going to spiral downward. So there's this tension throughout, but really this is mostly a collection of 
poetic, natural imagery um, that captures their relationship, but it never quite pushes over to that Malick cliche. It's really beautifully done. Um, and then this last one I'll mention is one of the higher profile ones I said that I would try to avoid. But I'm always curious about comedians who are stretching themselves in dramatic fashion. Doesn't always work. We've talked about Foxcatcher. But I Smile Back has Sarah Silverman in a purely dramatic role as a depressed middle upper class mother and wife who's dealing with the repercussions of the destructive decisions she makes as part of the alcoholism that's related to her depression and the drug addiction that she's suffering from. She's really strong. I mean, I figured she could do it. We reviewed Take This Waltz, yeah. at which you liked quite a bit. I was a little iffier on, but Sarah Silverman had a small supporting part, purely serious there, that she really knocked out of the park. And so I knew she could do it. She's even better than I thought she would be in this. Uh, the film itself is maybe a little bit more familiar in the storyline, something you might expect at Sundance. I think you had said something about if it's one of those stereotypical Sundance films. So the story doesn't really go anywhere, but it was impressive to see Silverman not just be serious, but make this, you know, sometimes comedians will become, they'll just drain their charisma to become serious. And she still gives this character a personality of her own. She makes her a fun mom. She makes her a caring mom. She also makes her, you know, a prickly wife who the movie's largely about denial, both the husband's denial and her own. And it kind of dismantles that, deconstructs that. So she does still manage to have some personality. It's different than her on stage as a stand-up personality. Uh, and it really works for the film. So that was sort of exciting to see. And I, I'd recommend Don Verdeen, too. It you was did fun. see it. Yeah, I did see it. It's it's no uh, Nacho Libre. Well, it's not, you know, I few mean, films are. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it is a lot of fun. Uh, some really good moments. And Jermaine Clement probably steals the film. He has uh, a small sporting part at the start, and it kind of blossoms as things spiral out of control for Sam Rockwell's main character, and he gets more involved. Um, and so that was pretty amusing. But really great experience. I hope I can go next year. Just packing that many movies in, not really being able to know what's coming because you're in such a hurry or such a rush and uh, you can't remember what films you had chosen for that day. So you sit down, the lights go down, and it's completely unexpected what's going to come up on the screen. We don't always get that a lot because of you know pre-research we do, right. try to decide what are we going to review. And so it's it was just uh, a delight to be kind of thrown out there and uh, see what happens. Good stuff. And we will post the full lineup of the movies Josh saw at Sundance in the show notes over at filmspotting.net will link to his letterbox page, which has his rankings of the 11 films he saw there. Now, Josh, while you were off gallivanting around Park City, I was here in Chicago shoveling 20 inches of snow off my driveway over the course of 36 hours. Did you get a little taste of that when you came back? I came home just in time okay. to start shoveling. Well, the closest I had to a Sundance experience this year was in between bouts of shoveling. I watched a movie distributed by Sundance Selects via cable on demand. And that movie is called The Duke of Burgundy. It was just released in some select cities, I think just New York and L.A., and then VOD last Friday, the 23rd, and is still playing as far as I know. And Josh, this is a movie I do have a lot to say about, but you're just going to have to trust me on that because, A, I prepared absolutely nothing to say about it here for the show, <laughs> okay. and B... 
That was mainly due to time, but it was also because I think we're going to have many more opportunities to talk about it as the year goes on. The entire reason I wanted to get it in this show is that I think we need to officially get it out there so it can be an official Golden Brick nominee later in the year. That's how confident I am about what I think you're going to think of this film and what I think listeners are eventually going to think about this film as more people see it. And based on the fact that it's, again, a young director, definitely an interesting, distinct vision. Everything we look for in a Golden Brick candidate is there. One of our criteria, of course, is that it had to be discussed on the show. So this isn't really going to count as a formal discussion. But again, hope it will at least get the word out a little bit and allow us to open it up for more discussion later in the year. Because it's a movie that is challenging. It's hard to describe plot-wise other than the fact that you've got two women who live in a house together, or at least seem to share it most of the time, we come to learn that they are not just what they seem to be, which is the owner of the home and the maid who does her bidding around the house, but actually lovers. And we see a lot of events repeated throughout the course of the film that we think maybe we're seeing from a different perspective or getting a different take on it. And at some point, it becomes a little clearer that maybe we're not actually seeing the same event through a different lens, but what we're actually seeing is the same event being played out every day, appropriate as we're recording on Groundhog Day, maybe. We're seeing the same event being played out. That's what they do. This is part of a routine they play out regularly as part of their psychosexual power dynamic, which does involve one person being in a dominant role and one person being in a submissive role. But every time we see those new versions of the scene, There's new layers to it. We start to learn more about the characters. Things we assumed we knew about them do come out in a completely different way. And the director, Peter Strickland, who also made the movie Barbarian Sound Studio, uses some of the same techniques he used in that movie to reflect that. One of the things he does is use a lot of reflections. He also uses, for lack of a better term, I don't know if this is really accurate or not, but a lot of refractions. There's a lot of dual imagery here, a lot of those lenses that are showing things in a double or even triple way. And sometimes you're seeing characters through panes of glass where it's obscured. And it's this film that based on everything I just said, the fact that these women are constantly engaged in these types of psychosexual games with each other, you expect it to be incredibly erotic and maybe even incredibly graphic. And it really isn't. And part of that is the way that he uses those lenses and the reflections to obscure that stuff and to make it be much more about what their relationship is really about, which is actually love. It's a love story, and it's about the sacrifices couples make, even if this couple and their experience doesn't necessarily match the experience of everybody watching. It's also a movie that is largely about role-playing and role-playing in relationships, which, as listeners may recall, was a dominant theme for me, no pun intended, from last year and my favorite movies of 2014 that certainly plays out over the course of this movie as well the duke of burgundy so consider this the qualifying round qualifying round okay it's in it's in i got two minutes on it it officially hopefully qualifies now hopefully you'll see it and many listeners will see it and we'll see if it makes the eventual cut for the golden brick later in the year all right back to our usual programming when we return with our top five rescue scenes this week it was the suggestions from listeners that saved me the Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. I want to share your mouthful. I want to do all the things your lungs do so well. I'm going to bed into you like a cat bed into a beam. 
turn you inside out and lick you like a crazy packet. sounds this week on film spotting of the uk band alt j from their 2014 album this is all yours they're currently on a mostly sold out european tour with upcoming dates in germany switzerland and italy the band then is going to come stateside at the end of march playing madison square garden on the 30th chicago listeners will have to make the drive across indiana for an april 1st date in cleveland more information about the band at altjband.com we do have a couple of donors a new donation from David in Atlanta, Georgia, and also Carol Westbrook in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, with a platinum level donation. It's February again, time for my second annual donation to film spotting. I am a longtime listener and now a regular donor. I love your funny voices, your Chicago accents. I think she's saying those are the funny voices. Not Massacre Theater? No. And, you know, you do have that Chicago thing going for you, Josh, most of the time. I'm, I'm from Iowa. I don't have a Chicago accent. You haven't adopted it yet? I don't think so. Will you ever? <laughs> Which reminds me, Carol says, that I am a long way from my native town. As a physician, I don't have much time to go out, so I find your reviews to be helpful to select films that I know I will like, such as Whiplash, which I otherwise would have missed. February is also the time for my second annual Beer Plus Oscar pairing, in which I select craft beers and occasionally bourbon to pair with the nominees for Best Picture. The results are published online in the Beer Clinic. We can find that at yourbeernetwork.com. Yeah, we'll link to that in our show notes directly to that article. Carol adds, you may recall my beer and Oscar pairing, which you mentioned on your show last year. Since then, I've gathered several of my columns into a book about craft beer called To Your Health, The Beer Doctor on Good Beer, Good Times, and the Finer Things in Life. I'll be sending you an autographed copy, which I hope you enjoy. Very nice. Josh, when I get that, when it comes to our P.O. box, I am going to share that with you because you are the beer connoisseur here on Film Spotting. Well, let's not get too carried away. Okay, connoisseur may be, may be a highfalutin word, but you do enjoy the finer this is true. aspects of beer a little more than I do. Yeah, I, I've been enjoying uh, Nitro Stouts. I think it's from Left Hand Brewery, hmm. which, yeah, really good for the winter. So maybe we'll have a pairing there. Does it warm Carol. you up inside? Is it that does. why it's good? Yeah. Very, very warm and cozy. Coming up next, beer spotting. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. 
Hey there, Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, and on our latest episode, we'll review Automata, a recent indie sci-fi film starring Antonio Banderas about a dystopian future dominated by robots. Inspired by Automata, Alison Wilmore has been replaced by me, the review Otron 5000, the most advanced film criticism robot ever invented. Say, does anyone know where I can connect to Skynet? Just kidding. Robots are totally safe and friendly and in no way evil or creepy. Isn't that right, Matt? Uh, yes? That's what I thought. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting. A little short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. You're who? I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Ben Kenobi? Where is he? Come on. What better way to kick off our top five rescue scenes in movies than with that scene? I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you from Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, a movie that will not make either of our lists because it is in the Pantheon along with The Empire Strikes Back. These are movies that we consider... So wonderful, they are not eligible for top five consideration. A few other movies on that list have some rescue scenes in them. Obviously, we didn't consider those. Josh, what are the movies you considered and what made your cut? I didn't do a lot of considering personally this week. I have to fess up on that. What with Sundance and then getting home to that blizzard Mm -hmm. we talked about and doing an awful lot of shoveling, uh, it was tight to make the recording deadline. So what I did, as I usually do anyways, is put out a request on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, What are you guys thinking about? We're doing top five rescue scenes. And a lot of times I'll work those into the ones that came to my head first or the ones I've researched this time. I just plucked the ones that sounded right to me when I saw them today. You mean you don't do that every top five list? (laughs) No, I don't. I take them, you know, a lot of times there'll be crossover, ones Mm -hmm. that I've been thinking of. And that's kind of... Um, confirmation for me. You know, I'll feel like if I was thinking of that, right. that as a top five contender mm-hmm. and a lot of people on Twitter suggested it, it's probably a good one. Uh, in this case, I just stole them. Though I will credit listeners <laughs> for these picks. Uh, number five does come from a listener on Twitter, James Hrivnak. I hope I'm saying that name right there, James. It's H-R-I-V-N-A-K. He suggested the scene of Kiki flying to the rescue in Kiki's delivery service. Uh, this is a film from 1986. It's a Hayao Miyazaki picture, one that many of his fans do cite, at least I've seen, as their favorite. A lot of people have a very personal attachment to this one. It's not quite as high for me, but it is a very delightful picture and does have this thrilling action climax. At this point, Kiki, uh, she's a young witch who's in training of sorts. She's lost her power, so she's unable to fly on a broom or communicate with her cat, Gigi. And she's in this somewhat of a depression at this stage when she sees a news report of an airship that's drifted off of its moorings, and she notices that her friend, Tombo, is hanging from a rope as it rises higher and higher over the city. So without time to think, she runs out of the house, grabs a push broom from the guy outside who's just sweeping the street, jumps on it, and flies to the rescue. So I like how this scene does serve a double purpose as this traditional action climax to the film, but also as this reclaiming of identity. 
I've also heard from fans that they appreciate how it inverts the damsel in distress paradigm because Tombo is a boy in the film. So thanks, James, for that one, the rescue scene from Kiki's delivery mm. service. A good pick. I think this is one of those top fives that doesn't need a whole lot of setup in terms of criteria or talk about what defines a rescue scene versus a non-rescue scene. That said, we did get some questions and some suggestions on Twitter along the lines of Bob P. who said, are we talking literal only or can you do It's Not Your Fault from Goodwill Hunting? Mm. Those therapy scenes and the Robin Williams character ultimately redeeming and saving, if you will, Will Hunting or one listener, and I was just looking for it on Twitter. I'm sorry, I can't find the name, but someone suggested Fanny and Alexander the Bergman film, Rabbi Jacoby rescuing Fanny and Alexander from the mean bishop in that one. But having not seen Fanny and Alexander in some time, I don't think there is an actual literal type of rescue. I think it is more of a metaphorical one, getting them out of the situation they're in. I know that I focused on more literal cases of characters being in peril and someone or multiple people coming to their aid. Is that how you did it as yeah, well? Yeah, in one case, you could say it's more emotional peril, but yeah, they're pretty literal. Okay, well, one movie I did throw into the penalty box and made off limits for this top five because it's come up on a lot of lists over the years, Escape from New York, one big rescue movie. Yes, there are specific rescue scenes we could highlight, but again, figured it's gotten enough love over the years. So with that, we get to my number five, and this is one where... Like you, I had a lot of confirmations of movies I had in mind from various people on Twitter and our Film Spotting Advisory Board, those listeners over in our forum who help us out with these types of lists. But there was one pick that I absolutely would not have thought of at all in this context without a listener on Twitter. And I'll get there in a second and give them credit. But I do want to say before divulging the name or the scene is that looking at my list, there was an action element. I think there is an action element to all of these choices, even if the main genre of these movies is an action or a thriller. You expect there to be that element to any kind of rescue, obviously. In fact, you'd probably say it would be contradictory to have a passive rescue scene, right? Someone has to be taking action as the audience. We revel in that action. There is suspense. There's stakes. And yes, if you're playing film spotting bingo, you could do another shot. I just dropped stakes in there again. This number five pick is, I think, a subversion of that. And it came in from a listener on Twitter named Scout Tafoya, who is a contributor for RogerEbert.com. The movie is Let the Right One In, the 2008 Swedish vampire movie directed by Tomas Alfredson, who also did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, was interviewed on film spotting for Tinker Tailor. And there is a pretty graphic scene in the movie where the vampire, Ellie, is saved by our main character, the 12-year-old Oscar. And it's entirely possible that that's the one Scout is thinking of. He just said, let the right one in. But the one I immediately thought of when I saw that title is the final scene. So spoilers here if you haven't seen, let the right one in. Oscar, this young boy who's bullied by kids at school, he finally stands up for himself at one point and gets a good lick in on the main bully, Connie. Connie and two other boys at the end of the movie, they try to get their revenge by attacking him at the school pool. And it's Connie's brother, I think, Jimmy, who forces Oscar to hold his breath underwater for three minutes. And he's holding his head under the water. And a minute in, with Oscar there, we're just showing him, the camera just focuses on him in a close-up under the water, holding his breath as best he can. And all of a sudden, we see a body part fly past <laughs> Oscar. Then we see some legs being dragged around the pool, the torso obviously above the water. There are vague sounds of screams, muffled and then eventually a head and the arm of the boy who was holding Oscar's head under. He's then pulled out 
by an arm as the water fills up with blood. And you're watching Oscar with his eyes closed the whole time, oblivious to everything going on around him. He's in distress, but seemingly resigned to whatever his fate is going to be. And we don't ever get to see the hero in action. We just get to see the consequences of what the hero is doing in this case. And even if we did, Josh, would we want to see? Would we want to see the horror of what's happening? Probably not. I went back and looked at my notes for this movie, and it's funny how imagination can work in cinema, because I recalled it as I looked at my notes as being much more gruesome than it really was. I think it's almost a case of Alfredson reveling in the revenge. That's how I thought of it at the time, processing the movie after seeing it, but he really doesn't. He really does play it very restrained and plays it for what it is, which is this act of love. And based on how the film then concludes, ultimately, you get this sense that Oscar is both saved by that rescue scene and doomed by it, unfortunately. That's one of the great horror techniques, right? The less you show, the more Mm -hmm. affecting it is. Yeah. Good scene. My number four is Lois Lane hanging from the helicopter in 1978 Superman. And this one, Sarah Staggs first suggested it. She's a member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. But I saw this a number of times also on Facebook and Twitter. It's the most traditional rescue scene, I'd say, on this list. But that's fitting because the original Superman... I think of it as the comic book movie as Norman Rockwell painting. You know, there's there's nothing really surprising here. It's iconic, though. It's endearing. Um, but everything's pretty expected, as you would from a superhero movie, especially in 1978. That's also how this rescue scene plays out. The helicopter that Margot Kidder's Lois Lane is riding in gets caught on a cable, ends up dangling from the top of a skyscraper. Clark Kent makes a quick change, and Superman comes to save the day. It's fairly perfunctory in terms of action. We were talking about Clint Eastwood and his filmmaking style. Pretty straightforward here. You could almost argue that John Williams' score does more of the work than Richard Donner's direction does. But it's still a lot of fun. I should probably add, though, that there is a bit of a non-traditional element at play in the way Kidder puts her stamp on this scene, throwing out a one-liner mid-rescue. Easy, miss. I've got you. you. You've got me? Who's got you? Who's got you? What a what a great touch, right? And I think she always reminded me this performance of Karen Allen's in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I I think there was something going on there from the 1970s wave of feminism that's paving the way for female characters who allowing them to dominate a scene even if they're the ones being rescued. Mm-hmm. So I've always liked that little touch there about the 1978 Superman. Sure. One I really strongly considered because looking back, it might be one of my earliest rescue movie scene memories. Yeah. I don't know what would have come before that on screen. I'm pretty sure I saw Superman the movie even before I saw Star Wars. So might be the first one for me. That would make sense. Yeah, because a lot of people saw Star Wars long into its extended run and Mm -hmm. with Superman in 78. Yeah, probably. My number four pick is one of those films that I definitely did think of right away, but many listeners confirming on Twitter that I was headed down the right path. This is from James Cameron's Aliens. Yeah. And the real question here wasn't the movie. It was which rescue scene to pick, because you've got the finale to this movie where Ripley, Sigourney Weaver, rescues Newt. Also, Bishop rescues them. And come on, Sigourney Weaver in a power loader fighting (laughs) the queen alien that's that's pretty good stuff you've also got the sequence where hicks 
and the Marines rescue Ripley and Newt when they're trapped in the Meta Lab later in the film. But I'm going with the first rescue scene, and I was rewatching it today. And on the DVD, on the Blu-ray, it's called Ripley's Rescue. That's what it is. Going with your subversion of the damsel in distress, that's what our FAB member Greg Berlin pointed out, that that's what this scene does, where it's Ripley rescuing Hicks and the other Marines, and not just them, rescuing herself, really getting them all out alive is how you have to look at it. And this is where they've just found Newt, the lone survivor from this group of colonists, and in trying to get her out, they're attacked by the xenomorphs, and many Marines get killed. Chaos ensues. The Lieutenant Gorman gets rattled. He's basically paralyzed and doesn't know what to do and freezes up. So Ripley does what she always does throughout the series. And even back in the first Alien movie, she acts. She grabs the wheel of their vehicle and goes to retrieve the remaining Marines. And she gets all of them out of there, I think, except for one. It feels like a scene out of Tim Burton's Batman. And saying that, Batman came three years later, so maybe it was Burton riffing a little bit on what he saw from Cameron. But the vehicle she's driving looks a little bit like the Batmobile, Hmm. actually. And she's careening through these gothic-looking corridors of that colony. The James Horner score actually even has a Danny Elfman quality to it, though not so much with the quirkiness. What I love about this scene as well is not just that she's a woman, in this case, who's being the hero, but she's a consultant in this sequence. She's a non-Marine. I think one of the other women Marines at the beginning of this sequence says, what is she, Snow White? Who's Snow White? You know, they're writing her off instantly, and yet she's the one who consistently bails them out. She's just smarter. She's tougher. She's more in control of the situation. And there's one scene at the end of it where, as she's careening through these corridors, an alien gets on top, and Ripley puts on the brakes, and then runs over it after it flies off into the middle of the hallway there. And as she runs over it, Cameron gives us a little close-up of Sigourney Weaver, and there's just this twinkle of a smile Hmm. as she crunches the alien under the wheel. She really does not like these creatures, and I love that little touch to that rescue scene. Yeah, that one came up a lot. Great pick. My number three comes from Levi Chapman on Facebook. He suggested the graduate wedding rescue. Mm. This was the emotional one where it's not quite literal, but it becomes literal as it goes on. Like so many romantic comedies that would follow, this 1967 film ends with the female love interest here, Catherine Ross's Elaine Robinson, in church, about to marry the wrong guy, when the hero, Dustin Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock, interrupts the ceremony and saves her. Now, no matter how many times we've seen this scenario played out on screen in other films, for me at least, this is the one that sticks with you. It's become the standard bearer for this cliché. Director Mike Nichols really makes this sense of urgency palpable. He begins with the shots of Hoffman racing along the road in his convertible, and then the car slowing down. And I love how the Simon and Garfunkel music also slowly peters out as the car runs out of gas. So then he's got to get out on foot and running, and he sticks with them there. You know, he really gives us time watching him run, even when we get to the church in long shot, watch him run up the steps, go to the front door, can't get in. And we're just waiting and waiting for that moment. Then Hoffman, you know, he brings this sort of raw and unsettling emotion to the moment when he sees them. He sees the ceremony ending from behind this glass up above in the balcony, and he just starts banging away on those windows with such ferocity. Doesn't stop until Ross responds with a scream of her own. (laughs) 
mean, that sort of vitality, that's, that's what made him such an exciting new talent in 1967. Of course, you also have Nichols' masterful final moments mm-hmm. on the bus after they do escape that make us wonder if Elaine really was rescued. Uh, hints there that maybe they're not necessarily a good match, but hey, at least she escaped what seemed to be a doomed marriage. That was a great pick and a great articulation of what you love about that scene. But really, all you had to do was turn around to the studio glass behind start you. Banging yeah, start banging away, shouting, Elaine, <laughs> Elaine. It would have been sufficient, John. Yeah, that so, would have been a little quicker. Certainly. My number three pick is actually going to anger one of our listeners, though I'm sort Uh-oh. of keeping with the theme of the listener's choice for this top five. We got this tweet from Daniel Bindis. He said, if Toy Story 2 doesn't make your list... I'm going to stop listening to you. Yikes. So, so threatening. <laughs> and I guess Daniel is going to unsubscribe from the show. I was going to say this I'm could go either way. You're I'm opening hoping, a can of worms. Or... I'm hoping I can salvage the pick, Josh. Okay. By even though I am forsaking Toy Story 2, I am going with Toy Story 3. Yes. The incinerator sequence, mm-hmm. the finale of Toy Story 3. The scale and the detail of the incinerator and the animation there is great. Just overwhelms the toys there as they are hanging on for dear life with that fiery pit below them. And the way that's captured, the way the Pixar animators envision that sequence, it becomes not just a fiery furnace, but something almost cosmic, like something we would see in another galaxy, Mm -hmm. like in Jupiter ascending, something from some distant planet. It's existentially dreadful. Beyond simply the situation the characters are in, which is a matter of life and death. And we've seen this type of rescue scene a million times. The heroes seem to have no hope. All is lost. But then, you know, something is going to happen. A character is going to have a last second epiphany. The hero is going to arrive and sweep them up or some kind of deus ex machina. And here, there's so much time spent showing the character's acceptance of their inevitable demise that as a viewer, I remember watching it with my kids. And having the feeling, even though I should know better, that there really is no way out. This is definitely the last Toy Story movie we're ever going to see. And how am I going all to these characters, yeah, to my all kids. these characters are about to die. And all my kids are sitting here actually watching it with their cousins, thinking about subjects I didn't want them to think about until they got into college. That's all being shoved in their faces right here with this movie because they're all about to die. And it's interesting rewatching it. Probably never really occurred to me that... The first character who resigns himself to it and holds out his hand to Jesse is Buzz Lightyear, the impulsive, impetuous, ultimate hero figure who starts the chain of everyone else holding on to each other. Basically, he knows there's nothing he can do, even though he's always the one making something happen. And I remember also thinking, there's almost something beautiful about this. There's something poetic about the way they're facing death. Is this the way we should all face death? Why is a cartoon making me think about how I should face death? That's all swirling through my head. And just as that's all swirling through my head, of course, they are saved. But then even that is really, really clever. The Little Green Men and The Claw. A callback to the first movie. And yes, they were in two and they show up in three, obviously, as well. But you talk about existential. That's why it's so perfect. I remember the Little Green Men from the first movie and how they're introduced. And there is that great moment where Buzz asks them who is in charge. And they say the claw. The claw belongs in the machine. And they say the claw will decide who will go and who will stay. Right? Think about that in existential terms. Guess what? As we see in Toy Story 3, the claw does decide ultimately who will go and who will stay. So I love that touch to the end of that scene. Perfectly worked as a deus ex machina, if you will, that heroic savior moment. 
And I love what it made me think about, even though it was challenging in those closing moments of Toy Story 3. For sure. I had those same emotions and thoughts as that ending was going on. And you know what I think it is about the potency of the imagery there is the sense of scale that that series always manages to make. Exactly. It does seem like it's cosmic because to those little toys, it is cosmic. It's so far below them, like they're disappearing into some kind of black hole or something, but obviously filled with this fiery glow. It's, It's amazing. Really good pick. All right, my number two, I'll just use the phrase that they do in the movie. It's a lightning strike rescue op. This is from The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I knew it was going to make your list. So many you know, listeners had this pegged. They did. They picked it <laughs> right out. And the first person who I saw mention it and said they guessed I would pick it, he's on Twitter as Movie Rabble. This is after being set upon by pirates when Bill Murray's Steve Zissou plans a rescue mission to save the Bond Company stooge who had been kidnapped. They think he's held on this island that has this abandoned hotel complex. Now, this isn't entirely a spoof of military-style rescue op scenes, but it's certainly not entirely straight-faced either. It's somewhere wonderfully in between in Anderson's world. We get this hilarious opening shot of Cody, who's their three-legged dog. That's how this rescue op is going to kick off. But then we also get this impressive moment of Zissou's team arising silent and seal-like from the water. It looks like they know what they're doing. But of course, the joke is that even when they're doing ocean research, which is their jobs, they're often over their heads there. So they're going to be completely out of their element here and headed for disaster. This mission does seemingly end in failure. The hotel seems to be deserted. Steve falls down a flight of stairs, and this leads to his confession to Owen Wilson about being a washed up old man with no friends. So Anderson subverts his own action scene here before He goes on to offer the punchline shootout when the Bond Company stooge played by Bud Court is found in coat check and the pirates are playing cards in the next room. So what can I say? Movie Rabble predicted I'd make this pick. (laughs) He knows me too well. Yeah, I know you well. And I also don't speak Anderson as fluently as you do. I definitely don't speak Zissou, unfortunately. (laughs) Few people do. Maybe there will be time. It's an acquired language. Yeah. My number two pick, another one very popular on the Twitter, and rightfully so. It is the 1956 John Ford Western, starring John Wayne, The Searchers, which is obviously a rescue movie. The whole thing is about John Wayne's character trying to get his niece Debbie back after she's abducted by Comanche Indians. And if you haven't seen The Searchers, this is another case where you shouldn't listen to this and you should remedy that immediately because the scene I'm picking is the end rescue scene, which I love, Josh, because there are two twists to it, I think, on the typical rescue movie, which is what do you do when the person you're trying to rescue doesn't want to be rescued? Mm -hmm. This is five years after she's been taken. She's now an adolescent woman. She's one of the chief's wives. And she says to them, point blank, I'm a Comanche. These are my people. The other question is what happens if the hero's prejudices and anger are so strong that he'd rather kill her then have her go on living as an Indian. He'd be willing to destroy the very thing he's devoted his life over the past five years to saving. And he almost succeeds when he first finds her, if not for Debbie's brother intervening. And keeping the theme of listener feedback here alive, the best take on this, the best single concise line we got on Twitter that I saw came from the very clever Twitter handle, Gum Sandal Detective. You get it? Not gum shoe. Got it. Gum Sandal. The Searchers, where it goes from a chase to a rescue with a change of a gesture. And Hmm. that nails what makes the rescue scene at the end of The Searchers so, so great. Because there's another confrontation with Debbie. She flees from John Wayne. He chases her down on his horse. And we see it the same way her brother Martin does. 
you think he's going to finish the job. He's going to kill her. There is a real intensity to her running from him, his pursuit on his horse. The score certainly amplifies everything. He's after her. There's nothing compassionate about it. And when he finally gets her, he grabs her and hoists her up the way he'd hoist up the little girl he was pursuing initially or some weaker villain that he's about to pummel. And then we get that gesture where he pulls her down to his chest and cradles her. Let's go home, Debbie. Just with that gesture, everything changes in that moment, and it becomes really emotionally powerful and not surprising as well with a film that has this wonderful end framing shot of Wayne framed within his doorway with that great Western landscape behind him here in that moment where he is chasing her down. There's a similar framing with the cave that she's trying to run into. So just a classic scene from an all-time classic Western, an all-time classic American film. That reminds me of another Sundance film I saw, actually, not nearly as good as The Searchers, but Stockholm, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Is uh, stars Saoirse Ronan, and she plays a woman who was kidnapped at four, and the police find her at, mm-hmm. I believe, 22. And one of the, you know, the main questions of the film is she doesn't necessarily feel that she needed to be saved. Hmm. So interesting parallel there. All right. Number one, I had to go with this one that came from Sean Gilman, a member of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, way back here to 1923 for the waterfall catch in our hospitality. This is Buster Keaton's riff on the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Keaton is a New Yorker who travels south and reignites the rivalry by unwittingly falling in love with the daughter of his family's rival. Uh, She's played by Natalie Talmadge. A lot of chasing about takes place in this film, and it eventually leads to a raging river sequence in which Buster has fallen into the river and Talmadge gets in a rowboat to try and help him. Just before he goes over the waterfall, though, he manages to rescue himself by looping a rope onto a log, and then he swings over onto a ledge that's just below the waterfall's rim. But that's just the beginning of this scene. Talmadge then falls out of her boat, and she starts drifting towards the waterfall so buster has to time his swing just right to catch her or possibly a dummy there there's a cut there uh, that makes you wonder how they pulled off this trick but he certainly swings out under the fall catches her as she slips over the edge just at the right moment and then swings her back to the ledge what i really like about this in addition to the amazing acrobatics of it is that Keaton doesn't play it as a heroic moment at all. Something like Luke swinging Leia over the pit in Star Wars or a scene like that. He commits to the comic. This is an act of desperate flailing. There's ungainliness here. There's somehow a balance of elegance and ungainliness yeah. that he manages. Even after he set her on the ledge, he keeps swinging back and forth out of control like a clown. So for the sheer degree of difficulty and also this commitment to comedy, the waterfall catch there, that's my number one. My number one as well. You're absolutely right. Just because of the sheer degree of difficulty, it is a wonder. And I do love it. We've had this talk a little bit about the damsel in distress trope, and here it gets subverted a little bit in the sense that it starts out, it's a dual rescue. At first, it's her coming to his rescue when the tide there proves to be a little bit too strong. Then it is him having to step up and be a hero again. And that swing across, you're right. I was looking at that today. I watched it multiple times, and it's probably a dummy. We have to assume it is. But with Buster Keaton, you never know. And part of it is because of the way he stages those shots, where it's often these wide shots yeah. taking everything. And there's not a lot of cutting. Not that there was a ton of cutting in some of those movies, but he cuts to one close-up, really, of 
Talmadge as she's approaching the edge, and then it cuts back to the wider shot, and you aren't 100% sure. It's not so clear that it's a dummy, though, as I said, probably is. And the swing out and the swing back and the sense of danger he had to be putting himself in, Mm -hmm. you truly feel that that actor was in the same danger that character was in because there is no other harness there. There's nothing else about it that seems to be restraining him or giving him any recourse if something goes horribly wrong. It really is as breathtaking and as suspenseful as any big-budget action movie scene well, that's what I'm just that has thinking. followed it. I mean, it, it, doesn't it speak to the movie that we reviewed and inspired this top five, Jupiter Ascending, and all of the falling in open, dangerous, right. supposed spaces that take place in that film. Uh, it's not to say that you can't generate this sort of suspense with CGI, but that movie certainly didn't. No. And so many don't. And here we just have, just knowing that there is, we're being manipulated to some degree, but there is an element of foundational reality to the scene mm-hmm. is the reason it's so impressive. Yeah. Those are our top five rescue scenes. Josh, did you have any honorable mentions that you want to sneak in here? I definitely did consider Aliens because, as you said, there were so many good options in that film. Also, Captain Phillips came up. Those final moments when Tom Hanks is with the medical technician. One of the first ones I thought of. Really? Yeah, Yeah. it really was. I I could have gone that way. He's coming to terms with his own rescue there. Stephen Miller on Twitter and Eddie Allen on Facebook suggested that. And the Star Wars original trilogy film that isn't in the Pantheon, so would have been eligible, has a great rescue scene. Luke and Leia rescuing Han from Jabba the Hut in Return of the Jedi. Oh, good one. David Fowley on Mm. Facebook, among many other people, mentioned that one. Well, you did take one of mine, as I said, the Superman, the movie Helicopter Rescue in the running. My wife, very disappointed with me that I didn't make room for it in my top five, The Princess Bride Storming the Castle. Would have been a good one. Rescuing Princess Buttercup. Captain Phillips, not just because of the great culmination of that, which is one of the best moments in cinema all of the year it came out. That really is my favorite Tom Hanks acting ever as he deals with what he just went through. But the sniper scene itself, as they rescue him from the Somali pirates, that is intense as well. It deserves to be mentioned. Of course, we can't throw it out here on a show where we're talking about the Wachowskis and not mention rescuing Morpheus in The Matrix. Another common suggestion, yeah. Notorious. I love watching Cary Grant go get Alicia, getting Ingrid Bergman from the Nazis. King Kong, the Empire State Building, that is a rescue scene. They're trying to get Fay Ray, aren't they? And take down (sighs) the beast. But he brought her out there. I know. Hmm. I know. But ultimately, I was thinking about that. Yeah, it's one that maybe that's why it's just an honorable mention for me. Lots of great rescue scenes in... Speaking of James Cameron, the Terminator and also T2, the beginning or near the beginning of T2 when they get Sarah Connor and that great reversal of her expectations when it's Schwarzenegger, the old model coming to help her in this case. And then, you know what, a movie, I think this just got referenced recently on the show. Yeah, James Badge Dale, a movie that hasn't been talked about in two or three years here on the show. But there's a really good rescue scene in Iron Man 3. The Air Force You're One have sequence. To remind me. I just saw it the other day. It was on TV, and somehow I got stuck watching Iron Man 3 again. And it's where Air Force One is taken over by the bad guys, and all of the people on the plane, or a bunch of the people who are still alive, including the, oh, the yeah. flight crew, yeah. all just get thrown out yep. over the water. And Iron Man has to rescue them, like 13 of them, and he obviously can't carry them all at once. How are they going to do that? It's a good standard sort of action sequence. I enjoyed. So, it's a good one, yeah. Yeah. 
Those are, again, our top five rescue scenes. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm Larson on film. And at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting, that's where you can find almost 10 years of show archives and vote in our poll questions this week. Again, asking you to name Clint Eastwood's best film. Out in limited release this weekend, Josh, the movie that came up on our top 10 of the year roundtable. Few listeners have written in and said, okay, you talked a little bit about Winter Sleep. It made Michael's top 10 and nobody can see it anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's out now. If you're in Chicago anyway, it's playing at Facets here. Nuri Bilga Jalan, his Cannes Film Festival Palm Door winning film from last year, finally here in theaters. And his are the sort that you always want to try and see on a big screen if you can. Yeah. The Gene Siskel Film Center, Citizen Four, the Oscar nominated documentary feature about whistleblower Edwin Snowden, an interesting film, certainly worth seeing. Girlhood from France, about a girl growing up young, black, and poor in a Paris housing project. And at the music box, Red Army, this is a documentary about the Soviet Union hockey team. Gabe Polsky directed it. He's a Glencoe native, so a Chicago guy. And Josh, this is a movie I just caught up with over the weekend recommend it i'm a hockey guy so Mm -hmm. i was into the movie but i think it's one of those films like any good documentary whether you have any interest in hockey or not learning about the politics behind the soviet red army team learning about the personal dynamics between those players is fascinating stuff and it's one of those films that rightfully recognizes that Everyone thinks about that Soviet team just in terms of the miracle on ice. And you kind of figure maybe this is all going to culminate with that and their loss. That's just a small, small piece of this story. And it's treated as such from the Soviet perspective. So definitely a movie we're seeing here playing at the Music Box in Chicago. Out in wide release, Seventh Son. This is possibly a big Lebowski outtake with Jeff Bridges as some kind of witch killer looking for an apprentice to train Maude Lebowski as the powerful Mother Malkin and Spongebob Out of the Water, a movie I think I'm going to be alone on, Josh. Took my seven-year-old Quinn to see it. No Adam recommends? Not an Adam recommends. Oh, boy. I think I'm going to be alone. I think a lot of critics are going to go for it. Maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. Quinn gives it four and a half stars. And Jupiter Ascending, a movie neither of us Adam are does giving not recommend. four and a half stars, unfortunately, can not recommend out in wide release as well next week on the show michael phillips will be back we're going to share our oscar picks who will win more importantly who should win and we're going to do a sacred cow review of clint eastwood's unforgiven big show film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van Hogren. without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go thanks to associate producer candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at chicago public media chicago public media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community our nation and our world more information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org Our music this week is from Alt-J, comes from the 2014 album This Is All Yours. More information is at altjband.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. That and more. Woof. Ahead on film spotting. That was a very half-hearted wolf. Well, that was a half-human wolf. So that was good. I'll do it again. Hold on. No, that was good. It was Actually, like, well, let's do the whole thing again. I'll give, I'll give Sam and, and Joe a different take. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll play it. I'll play it female and British. Yes. Um, 
our review of Jupiter Ascending, plus this week's top five movie rescue scenes. That and more, woof, ahead on Film Spotted. <laughs> Did I fade too much there? Because <laughs> that know. was much more realistic. Good. <laughs>